Welcome to the first episode of Blokes Watch Movies. Thank you for joining us. It's our first ever podcast together. I am your semi-host for the show today. I'm just going to run through the details of the show. But before I do that, let me introduce the other two hosts. My lifelong friends, buddies, pals, brothers, James and David. Is that me, lads? You right? Yep, you missed out, mentor. But yep, <laughs> that, uh, it's good to be here. James? Thanks for having us. Um, so, blokes watch movies. Pretty obvious what it's about. It's about three blokes that watch movies. None of us are in the industry. Um, I wouldn't say any of us were overly interested in, in getting into movies as a career, but we've always had a passion, and we've had a passion for different types of films. We love a bit of banter. We often feud about many a thing. So we thought it'd be a good idea just to talk about some of the films that we've enjoyed watching, some of them that we don't enjoy watching, and have a little bit of friendly banter and conflict so today we decided to reflect on a film that is quite nostalgic for all of us, Goodbye Charlie Bright. So how each episode's going to work is that one of us will host the show and then the other two will kind of co-host and, and, and intervene when we can. So today's show is going to be hosted by Jim. So Jim, do you want to take it away? Cheers, Mark. So, all right, Goodbye Charlie Bright, which is probably going to contradict the feud in the tagline, because I think we all love this film relatively equally. Goodbye Charlie Bright was originally released on the 11th of May in 2001. So we're yeah we're coming up on 20 years since it came out and was basically half our lives ago. And at the time this movie came out, the, the three of us would have been just approaching our 20th birthday. So we would have been more or less exactly the same age as the five central characters in it. And we all, like the characters, lived in southeast London, uh, you know, in and around the council estates. So just to give a quick run through of the plot of, of this movie, it's set on a sort of un, well unidentified council estate in southeast London, and it begins with a group of initially five friends, all aged around 18, set over about five days during a summer. Our main character is Charlie, who's a somewhat disaffected figurehead of the core group, and this core group basically spends their time idling around the estate, paying their way through thieving when the opportunity presents itself, and, and generally getting up into scrapes. Charlie's life begins to change when two of his lifelong friends start falling away from the group. So first, you've got his friend Tommy, who joins the army and gets shipped off to Armagh. And then Francis, he finds out he's going to be a dad. And these two events draw Charlie's attention to the question of whether his life is actually going anywhere. And he starts to, you know, he starts to get even more disaffected, even more disillusioned, starts to chafe against the confines of the council estate. As he says in one of the very first lines of narration, he wished he could have got out of the place. Unfortunately, Charlie's best friend, Justin, he's a completely aimless character. He's more than happy to live within the walls of the estate, mostly because he can't cope with life beyond those walls the way that we see Charlie can on the two or three occasions that they leave the estate. As a scorching summer week wears on, a lifetime of buried tension between the two boys rises to the surface and Charlie will ultimately be faced with a decision about whether he is truly content for his life to carry on as it is or if he's ever going to get out of the place and do something with himself. And so that's the story of Goodbye Charlie Bright, sort of in a nutshell, and you know, managed to stop short of spoiling it too much. And 
I wanted to just start talking, start the conversation with just a, a general discussion about like, what, what sets this film apart from other films of its type being made around this era. And I would say the first thing that comes to mind to me when I think about this film is how sort of colourful it is which is kind of at odds with, you know, the council estate setting. It's, you know, it's quite a dreary place, and, you know, Charlie in particular, he doesn't like it all that much, and it depresses him. But the the look of the film, you know, the, the look of the film isn't as oppressive as Charlie finds the council estate, and that's always struck me as very, very interesting. Like, Nick Love shoots the film in, in widescreen, and, you know, everything is very colourful. Like, the, the opening shot is, you know, three of the, the core five characters against a very bright, pastel pink wall you know and the characters are generally wearing bright, bright clothes and the sky is always regularly shown to be clear blue and cloudless and and to me that that's one of the reasons why i think this film struck the chord that it did with people from our area is that like it it didn't lean into like the the council estate as a depressing place trope which you know it doesn't you know the council estate doesn't always feel depressing when you're the age of these characters and i'm just wondering like is that how you guys remember your reaction to it like you know did did you feel like finally a a council estate film is showing that summer as a teenager in southeast london could be fun or david you want to go yeah um yeah i think so i think we all remember the the childhood days in the estate and the fun it was and then the summer holiday days and i think it's no coincidence that because it is a depressing looking estate as well in the film isn't it if you actually yeah. focus on the estate and not what they're wearing but i rewatched it this week and i actually one of the notes i took was just the clothing i did notice it's so weird when you when you study it they were wearing brighter clothes also just the style of clothes i think it's superb i totally agree with that that millwall giorgio kit yeah, was like yeah, yeah. the biggest selling millwall <laughs> kit of the time wasn't it it was and it features in the film they even, they uh, even turned out the old, an old one from about 94 that that yeah. little kid wears that yeah. has an appearance and was that was that, you know, was that the captain morgan one or? yeah the captain yeah, the morgan captain back morgan. in 1995 yeah. Uh, and the bon bleu, yeah, the bon, the wearing bon bleu. Wearing the bon bleu. Uh, his mate wears ice. existed. His mate wears iceberg history. The, the one thing I... they've uh, they've got the the Lacoste polos and 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 the bright colours. And but to be fair, as much as you're right, artistically and aesthetically, that looked really good, Jim. That was also relative to what the fashion was. So it kind of was in keeping. You realise more now, don't you? That yeah, like, just how like you know just. I think Nick Glover's good at that in general, just with clothing and how he uses that. To, it's pretty standard, but know what era it is. Give it, you know, you knew when if you was to watch that, it's late nineties. Give it, you know, uh, early noughties, give or take. Yeah, there's a special feature on the the business DVD where it's like behind the scenes stuff. Where like the I think it's one of the producers, or it might be a cast member, but they they remarked on how exact he was about the mm. 80s period clothing in, in that movie like and he's mm. very very specific so uh you know while obviously charlie bright is a film of its time i and i think that you know he would have been as exact with the the fashion choices for the characters being right for the characters of the area so obviously it's not period clothing but i think he would have been you know very very he would have been very, very on top of yeah the the costume design and 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 the things that the the characters would have been wearing. And I don't know if you guys remember this like one of the probably one of the most embarrassing things I'm, I've ever done in my life. But like within I'd say maybe a month of Charlie Bright coming out, and I actually went to see Charlie Bright three times at the cinema when it came out. But I do remember that within a month of it coming out, I I went 
to every single Hackett shop in central London until I found that Larry St. George rugby top that Charlie wears in the, uh, in, in the opening act. And I, yeah, uh, I proudly wore that for about seven years. So, the that's, that's like, a measure of how influential that film was on, was on me. But I think he got it on point. I, you, as a young man of late teens, you, I would never wear the full meal wall kit out. I wasn't a full kit wanker. I would wear the, the top with, another pair of shorts or uh, wear the shorts with a t-shirt but never the full kit and in the in the film some of the kids have on the shorts or the young men and some will just have on the top but never both and that's exactly how how it was how i remember it anyway but what jimmy was saying before about the the idea that that brightness that vividness shows that there's life in the estate even though that like you said we have this kind of dull gray oppressive image of council estates generally that's how i picture those places in my youth as bright sunny places because that's where we had fun we played football we run around we locked people in the lifts you know you do you do that kind of stuff and enjoy it and it's in its happy memories and but as an older man now if i go back to those estates i don't see that life because my perception of it is completely changed because i'm not 19 anymore i'm 40 jesus christ and and the way i look at the place those places as 40 is completely different yeah but i'd like i i I made a mistake earlier when i described it as being unidentified council state what i meant by unidentified was it doesn't necessarily sort of plant the council state in a particular region but there's two occasions early in the film where you see a sign that says neverland council estate and that's always kind of struck me as uh interesting because obviously we all know the area so we know that there is no such place as neverland council estate i believe actually that um it was filmed on the cambridge road estate in king's kingston upon thames but what i what i always struck me about the the choice to name it neverland council estate is it, it i think it creates this this sense of possibility for the characters because like you were saying mark like if you spend time away as a grown-up and then you go back you don't see it in the same way but yeah. with when you when you've grown up in it i think the cat you, you you can create a sense of possibility within the walls of it yourself so like you know, from the outside you look at a council state as a prison when you grow up in it you don't necessarily you know, think of yourself as being confined by it and i think mm-hmm. that's why Nick Love made these characters the age that he did is because all of these characters are getting to the age where they're starting to change that opinion of the council estate. And, you know, Charlie is starting to see it like a little bit of a prison in the same way that Tommy gets out and Franny starts to sort of want something more in his own way. Mm. And I think I think that's where the dramatic tension comes from in, in, in Charlie and Justin is because while the film is very, very colourful, Charlie has had his eyes opened when Tommy leaves and he starts to see the the estate for being a bit more restrictive than it, than it perhaps should be. It's an interesting choice that Nick Love makes to sort of persist with the very colourful look from start to finish, because I think a lot of filmmakers would have washed out the colour palette a little bit or sort of made the film look a little more confined, um, you know, in, in certain ways. But, you know, by persisting with the very colourful and open look to the cinematography, it kind of highlights charlie's disconnect from from the council state from the world around him and i think i think that's one of the things that you know sort of makes the casting of paul nichols really really good is that you know that he's of the of the the central five 
young characters, he would have been the most famous going into it, and people still would have remembered him as playing Joe Wicks on EastEnders. And he's got you know, a little bit of the you know, sort of smash hits heartthrob kind of look about him that yes, you know, really sets him apart from the other four guys in the group. So he's he looks like he doesn't quite fit, and because of that, he is just a natural candidate for you know getting out of the estate. So you always yeah. buy, you always buy his frustration. In fact, what you've said there is very true because out of all the actors in the movie he is the one that i thought would have the worst performance in prior to watching the film i was like mm, i'm not too sure he's a bit too heartthrob poppy smash hits kind of but i actually think that he's fantastic in the role i think he does a very very good he's job amazing actor he done super considering as well his accent was pretty much on, yeah. on key the whole on film point, I mean, on point, yeah. so many dodgy london accents in the film and yet He's, and I bet you are from London, just not South. <laughs> yeah, I'd always refer to Charlie Hunman's accent in, in Green Street as one of the worst <laughs> Cockney accents I've ever heard in a film. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, there's there's no there's no real getting around that one, is there? Like, um, yeah, like when no. you, when you see, yeah, that's, this is a, this is a distraction. But yeah, when you see how well he eventually did, like an American accent in Sons of Anarchy, Charlie Holland, you realised how you realise how tricky it is to do a London accent if you're not you know from London. And I imagine it must be harder if you are from somewhere else in in Britain to to do a convincing London accent. And I think that's why you know, Paul Nichols deserves a lot of credit for you know what he's able to pull off. Yeah. in this movie because mm. if you remember him from EastEnders he has a very very strong Lancashire accent yeah. mm. so like yeah the, the fact that you buy him as someone from what Deptford sort of Lewisham way I, yeah, I think is a yeah, great credit to him but, uh, but, but I think I buy into the film like you said because of the performance but because 75% of the movie is accurate I feel like I know it wasn't my life but the the trends the 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 things they get up to, the conflicts that they have, they're all things that I experienced as at that age growing up in South London. And that's that's what always brings me back to the film. Now, when I get to the end of the film, I always get to the end of the film, I'll always think to myself, is it as good as a film as I think it is? And then I stop and I reflect, and it makes me think of my summer holidays, hanging out with you guys, most summers around that age, my mum would go on holiday for two weeks to a month and I'd have a house to myself and we would get up to all sorts. Like, it was just brilliant. The story helps the young actors able to perform so well because I do think it's very well written and it's a very good story for 75% of it. I, I agree. It's, to me, I just think it's to myself, it, it didn't need to be as dramatic if we're going to, you know, as, as it most probably turned out. And there was a couple of scenes that were just a bit OTT and unnecessary, but to me, I I absolutely loved it watching it as a 20-year-old and still thoroughly enjoyed it watching it as a near 40-year-old. But yeah, like it, it it will always just remind me of the escapades, the, the mischievousness and the fun, pretty much, that you sort of associate. But also, you do remember when you sort of realise you have to grow up and as each summer passes, you sort of remember you just wanted to maybe do different things i mean to be fair obviously us three are you know are still in touch but there's a few friends who i've grown out of and i really associate with that side of it you know where you sort of become embarrassed by your mate i think i think there's a lot of it and possibly nick maybe even experienced that's my gut feeling says is that charlie most probably is even him and there's elements to it obviously without the 
overly dramatic stuff that most probably really associates with growing up. Yeah, I've got loads of mates like that, the same, where I felt like as we got older and we matured and we longed for, desired or worked towards different things, that their surroundings were still more important to them than than that that ambition to succeed or whatever it is you're trying to succeed yeah. at. Yeah, I mean, there's a line, uh, I, I think it's, yeah, it's about 17 minutes in. So there's a line about 17 minutes in where, you know, uh, the three remaining lads, Charlie, Justin and Damien, are looking at a postcard they've got from Tommy. And at one point, Charlie says to Justin, like, don't you want to know what's happening outside? And, and Charlie says, not really, no. And that's the kind of the, the push-pull between them is who who dares to look beyond look beyond the walls and you know, un- unfortunately some people are content to stay within the walls of their life and, and what's been established for them and they're quite happy to do it as well i think charlie's arc is about freeing himself from the obligation to feel bad about wanting more because i think that that aspect of wanting more when you grow up in an area like that is you know something that a lot of people who have it will feel embarrassed by I don't know if you've like you if you found this yourselves and you know, growing up there and the people you know, but like a lot of people who grew up in the like in the areas that we did who have ambition aren't always forthcoming about saying they have ambition because they don't want the people around them to think they think too highly of themselves yeah. or they think they're better than everybody else. And I think that's that's what un, you know, as Absolutely. much as Charlie is frustrated, I think that ingrained reticence. And that ingrained conflict, I think, is you know, part of why he finds it so difficult to comprehend getting away from Justin. Well, we, we've experienced it. I mean, the, the other guy that we used to grow up with, who was a good friend of ours, again, I'm only going to use names in terms of first names, and we're going to get into more stories later. His name is Ralph. Lovely guy, lovely background, lovely family. Lo- but he came into school one day and said, I was doing work, my homework in the conservatory. <laughs> And I think the three of us never ever let him live it down for the rest of his life. And and, and because he wasn't trying to be better, he had a conservatory, but us being us, we're all from kind of South London working class background. Conservatory? What, what are you talking about? Conservatory. Yeah. What's a conservatory? What? You went up to Greenwich to the observatory. What did you do? Okay. But but it's true. It happens. You know, the the all these things that happen in the movie, maybe not happen to us, but a version of or an experience that we can relate to it. My issue comes when it gets. He has to make it overly dramatic to make it a very strong movie, because if he just makes it a film about coming of age, it just gets lost, like so many other movies would. I mean, a great example of that would be Stand By Me. It's a fantastic film yeah. about brotherhood and togetherness, but it has to have that exaggeration to keep yeah. people watching. And that's what he does with this movie, and that's where it goes wrong for me. Like, up until that point, it's brilliant, and I actually understand why it needs to go into that direction. He just doesn't, he doesn't do it very well. He doesn't well. at all. I mean, there's... I don't want to... Because I'd be negative, but I was really... Uh, watching it back, offended by the start of the film um, when they're running naked through the estate. Because now I was just thinking, like, I want to put out there that me and Mark never run nude through an estate. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you leave me out of that one? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it, like I say, I, 
you know, I did notice so much more. Again, a bit negative, but I still love the film, and I actually will watch it again after you know we record this. So you know, just to look back on some of the things you've said and and what the, and there was so much stuff I forgot. I mean, uh, <laughs> I forgot about the old little cameo from Aswad. <laughs> oh, from Aswad, yeah. I mean, saying that, it has also got a killer yeah, soundtrack, yeah. this film. Um, there's tracks on it from Craig David, Oasis. Um, I think Left Field, there's a few tracks from. So they're not all from that same year, but they they do work with the movie yeah, really, it's quite really, an, really well. Yeah, it's quite an eclectic yeah, selection. Well. And one of the things that struck me, I almost texted you guys about it, but I didn't want to step on the toes of anything that we're going to talk about in this. So in the run-up to this, I actually watched the film twice. And... The first time I watched it, like, you know, there is a there is a key moment where, like you say, Mark, like there is an Oasis track, Live Forever, that's played during it. And it suddenly struck it suddenly struck me. This film came out in 2001. At the time this film came out, Live Forever was only seven years old. And I had like just I had to pause the film and just kind of sit with that for a second. Like, bloody hell. Like, yeah, there, there was a time once when Live Forever was seven years old. I mean, it's nearly, 30, it's, you know, it's 27 years old uh, <laughs> this year. And, you know, and I, I just kind of, yeah, and this is, um, this speaks to the film being very personal to all of us, but I, I just kind of sat with that sort of feeling of nostalgia because the film makes me feel like a kid anyway every time I've rewatched it. But, like, just trying to remember that Live Forever was once a very, very recent song just really did take me back to sort of being you know not only the age i was when i saw the film for the first time but the age i was when you know i first got into oasis when i would have been like 15 so yeah it works on all those levels but i was curious aside from the robbie williams carly minogue song that opens it the oasis song that closes it i wasn't familiar with too much of the background music i know craig david sings on one of them that's a craig david song i've never heard so two 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 craig david tracks actually rendezvous and the booty man can click off, click on www.cd.com. Excuse me, sorry, I got carried away there. I'm trying to think. I think there's a Mystique track in there as well. As a, so is is a, that Sugar Free? Or? Oh, no, there's, there, there's that as well. That's by... Oh, it's going to bug me now. But there are a few others in there. There are a couple of stinkers, though. Lady yeah. Spirit and In the House, Sugar Free. That's what that is. Right. Yeah. So yeah, there are some um, some good tracks on it. But it was right around the time that your know, garage was still like, I wouldn't say garage had a grip on the culture, but it was, am I right? That, that this time garage would have been like the dominant club music. Yeah. It was starting to peak in 2001. Is this 2001, isn't it? So yeah, I would say 2001, 2002 is when it was probably at its peak. So it, it kind of, it's all in keeping. Yeah. But so there's, there's that Craig David song that's playing, I'd say about like 35 minutes in when, Charlie is approaching Blondie is that the first time he inter- interacts with her yeah. other than the opening scene you, you you can very much tell that it's Craig David's vocals over it and that's that's a moment that I always personally loved because like it's a wide shot with a you know sort of a, a a gentle summer sky you know you got Charlie sort of in the polo shirt the shorts trainers with no no socks running across the estate and you just got the music that would have been playing at that time that we all would have been listening to that would have been on you know in our earphones while we were walking about the estate and just there's something about the alchemy of all that together that just really is like a just a, it, it feels like a flashback to a scene from my life that i didn't actually live 100 percent. if that makes any sense 100 percent. because craig david's born to do it came out in the year 2000 and in the year 2001 the first concert that david and i ever went to together was that concert born to do it yeah, uh, we went to go. I think it was at Wembley, Wembley Arena. So, like, it, it, 
again, it's another one of those memories of something that I actually lived and experienced. So it is nostalgic. I think that I think if I'm judging it on a film as a film, and I took the nostalgia out of it, I still don't think it's that. I, th- I still think it's pretty solid. I, I think it's a good film. I, another point I wanted to make, in case there's any American listeners out there. Because I know, you know, we, we, we go over the pond. We go everywhere with this. We're going to go everywhere with this podcast. I'm international already. International already, you know. I'm a man of mystery. Um, but because the, they call everything something different for some unknown reason. The film's called Strong Boys in the States. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it's called Strong Boys. That, that I do know that was the original title of the script. Oh, was it? I do, yeah. I um, I remember reading that, and I think Nick Love mentions it on on the DVD commentary. Like, yeah, that was the original original title of the script. I think that speaks to Nick Love being like, yeah, ten years older than the characters that he's writing about in this one, because like, I I think that is like a London phrase that people of Nick Love's age would have been using. People the character's age in two thousand and one maybe wouldn't have been. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because there's there's a few moments of slang. Like I remember the first time I watched it, there's a few moments of slang in there that I had to ask my dad, like, "What does that mean?" Yeah, you know, like because they're dated. Um, yeah, like when yeah. when Damien, there's one point where Damien comes and says, "Oh, these two guys are playing chess for a carpet." You know, did did that bit annoy you? Why? Wait, why, why? Just, Not just, especially. Has anyone ever ever witnessed a, an estate game of chess? No, <laughs> I, I can't say that. And and then it's like. Aren't they playing chess at another point in the in the in the film as well? And I was honest, thinking... at, when when I was twenty, the only time I ever played chess was in Ralph's conservatory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but never on the estate. Yeah. Your point about the chess. I mean, the only other time that Charlie plays chess is when there's a scene where he's playing with Franny in his bedroom when he's taken Franny away after you know, the lads have said they're not going to go out drinking with him to celebrate the Franny's girlfriend falling pregnant. And later in the film, Charlie's dad asks, like, you know, as the chess, she's still playing. And it's one of those underdeveloped parts of the script that it alludes to. Apparently, Charlie is a, what well, we infer from that, that Charlie is a genius chess player. But whether that's the key to whatever ambitions he has is you know, not really explored. One of the things that it really does conjure very well, to me anyway, is like it, it it really captures the things that you get up to when you are that age and you don't really have the concept of consequence. And I think that's sort of something that's kind of baked into the script at the very beginning of the movie. They're, they're getting up to their escapade, so they, they, they have the streaking, which I've always seen as them sort of streaking through a rival estate, um, uh, sort okay. of as a dare, because like, you know, they, like, they run and then they sort of go into a hedge that takes them to their estate and the lads who are chasing them don't really know where they've gone. So mm. like, yeah, I always read that as them getting one over on the rival estate, but they're doing things without, you know, really fearing the consequence. And over the course of the movie, various things that happen to them awaken, particularly Charlie's eyes to the fact that adulthood yeah. carries consequence. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And that is the thing that ultimately is, you know, that ultimately where the resolution of the movie comes is, you know, like, you know, one of the characters has to face up to a very, very grave consequence. And it's only through facing up to the consequence that comes with being an adult that life can move on. But and also, I think it, that's quite poignantly done to me. It also makes me realise that, that, that this is a film of generations because I don't know if you live in an estate now, but generally this concept of going to knock for your mates and playing out is a thing of the past. And I know that sounds really, really scary, but because of the way that we consume media now and the way that we look after our kids and especially our dynamic, 
Our kids will never experience that. My kids don't experience that at all. That kind of, I know it's that sense of community that you get from knocking about with the lad that lives on the estate or lives two doors down from you. Like, it's just a thing of the past. Well, I mean, not, you didn't even, sometimes you wouldn't even knock, you just call their name <laughs> from like wherever you are. I mean, Brendan! <laughs> Mum would come to the window, like, looking all peed off. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, they're good, uh, good times. Yeah, now I suppose they just WhatsApp each other uh, um, or whatnot. But yeah, uh, times times are changing. And yeah, and I think uh, it was a, it was a great a great era, really. You guys have children, but you're quite young children. Your your kids are still away off being this demographic. But I don't get the feeling that kids take the piss out of themselves out of each other anymore. You know, I, I think that's something that's really changed. And and that's something that struck me. Like you just for the, as part of the nostalgia when I was rewatching the film is you know like yeah the wind ups and like the fact the characters hit each other quite a lot in the movie. Like it, you know, it's it's a very strange way of showing affection, but it's how we did it. It's funny, right? Because I was thinking, I was actually thinking about that very point. I'm going to get to too much detail again. They see it just makes me think of stories. So. I remember when Jimmy, you first got into film when I had my house, and you were talking about making like a a home movie, like an actual film. And you came round, and you had the script, and you had a storyline, you had everything planned out. And I also remember that by the end of the evening, that we'd got so bored with the fact that you had this kind of artistic vision that we all ended up pretending to be wrestlers and <laughs> filmed it, <laughs> punching each other. Yeah, I I did a horrible thing to say, but like, oh, sorry, this is a really embarrassing thing to say, but I believe that I successfully executed on the historical cradle on Mark at one point. And <laughs> that was honestly one of my proudest achievements. Like the fact that I actually pulled off on the historical cradle. You know, Google it if you uh, need to look up what a historical cradle is. One, one, uh, one of my proudest moments of that whole situation, I think it shows how much I love you, Jimmy, is that you said to me, is it okay if I spit a bit of water in your house just for effect? <laughs> and I've gone, yeah, that's not a problem. That's not a problem, Jim. Say <laughs> hello. The bit that I remember, which is one, one of you's genuinely got hurt. Me, you broke my shoulder. It worked, and and then and then I'd done like a a flying elbow off your we'll call it the top rope, but your dining room <laughs> chair. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, there's no way if you actually knew I was going to do it. Matt, in case you, you wanted to know, listener, this is something from our past. We recorded that what two weeks before lockdown was it? <laughs> was it two? <laughs> yeah. That's the size of me now. You wouldn't want a top elbow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was just—it was that's that's, and I think though that if you've never experienced that, I don't think the film has doesn't resonate with you in the same way. But if you're not from London and you've ever really wanted to know what it's like growing up in in London, it ain't made in Chelsea. It's that 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 is what most of our experiences are of growing up in London. Without a doubt, in a city, London, without a doubt. In the summer, when you don't, you don't have school, and you just have to find ways to fill the days. And I think that's why I'll, I'll always reflect. I will always take that film because it gives me a point of reflection. 
And like I said, even though there's, there's, a, I'm not going to spoil the story, but there's some bits in it where there's supposed to be some villains and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and that bit just doesn't, it doesn't mesh, which is really weird because in in other films, he's he tends to get it right because he he kind of kind of attacks it with a comical aspect, um, but because of the drama of the film. It just doesn't quite work for me. But other than that, I've not got really too much to knock about it. Yeah, well, I think to David's point earlier, like I think David referenced the introduction of like the handgun that happens in Act One as just not quite fitting, you know, with the rest of the movie. And I think I, I would agree with that, but just because like his uh, understanding of daily life, the minutiae of daily life, you know, works so well in you know in the non-plot in the non-plot portions of the movie like you know, it's a slice of life movie but most movies need a need some kind of storyline to kind of wrap up and that's the, the choice that he made was to introduce you know what in filmic terms would be called the MacGuffin, um, like just that object that's going to create the scenario that's going to sort of bring the story to a close it stands out in charlie bright because unlike the movies he would go on to make it is charlie bright isn't really plot driven like you know, it, it is a slice of life movie. It ambles through its five days, whereas you know, football factory, business, outlaw, firm, all of those other movies are you know driven by story. So you know the the, the notes and the plot contrivances don't ring as false as they do in in Charlie Bright. No, totally true. Totally true. Totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, one thing that we um, just saw my notes. Just wanted to get your opinion as we've all all agreed about 20 minutes ago that Paul Nichols was amazing during the film. Um, yes. he, he stood out. Obviously, he never was, wasn't the lead in any of Nick Love's future films. Danny Dyer, don't be too critical of him, but his performance in the film was nothing short of disgraceful. And yet, he was pretty much the lead for the, you know, the following... What, two or three uh, Nick Love films because they because uh, he fits. You, it, it, you couldn't have Paul Nichols in the business for the same reasons that Jimmy said at the beginning. That kind of he's too clean cut, he's too heartthrobby, he's too smash hits. It just it, you just wouldn't believe it. It just wouldn't work if he came out and said, "Oh, I'm a geezer and I'm going to my bayer because I just done my stepdad." Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Like yeah, a little bit of trivia. Like yeah, um, I don't know if you guys know, but Paul Nichols actually kind of is in the football factory in 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 a manner of speaking. He did sort of uh, ADR for the Scouse characters. Yeah, so like yeah, you, when you hear the Scouse characters confronting Zebedee and Raph in Football Factory, that's actually Paul Nichols dubbing, who I presume are London actors who couldn't do a, a Scouse accent. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Mark's right. Like I look just mentally flicking through the the films that Nick Love would go on to make, and really only Rupert Friend's character in Outlaw, I think, could you know, is one that Paul Nichols you know could have played. I'm I'm not sure he could have played the roles that Danny Dial went on to play particularly in Football Factory and the business. But to not even feature, at, not really feature at all? That That is curious. I, I will say that is curious. Yeah, considering the rest of the cast is pretty much in every other bloody film. Like, it's, yeah. not, it's not just Danny Dyer. If you take every other member, they turn up at some point in at least two more movies, I would say. Yeah, so, you know, Frank Harper is in Football Factory, bigger part in the Football Factory, and Roland Manukin, who plays Justin in this film is in football factory and the business. I don't think he's in outlaw, but yeah, no, yeah. Nick Love did generally kind of reuse 
actors multiple times so it, it, you know, in retrospect it is curious that he didn't use Paul Nichols again like you can say that you know, he, he didn't fit for for any of those roles but I don't think it would have taken a great deal of imagination to slot him into you know particularly Outlaw given what Outlaw was about he, but um, yeah, his it, career was supposed to go from strength to strength at that point as well yeah. though that you've got to take that into consideration because although the film I wouldn't say got critical acclaim um, Paul Nichols did so I think people felt that that was going to be the start of a a, a trajectory. He was going to take off from that point forward, and maybe he never, maybe he did get offered them and just didn't want to do them. It's also possible, yeah. You know, you never know, dear. You don't know. I mean, when you hear about all these films that people turn down, and you're shocked by it, but you don't know what how a film's going to turn out until it's done. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's my um, mission now to find out what happened. Um, and maybe a later episode we'll, uh, we'll I'll uh, find out the reason why and I'm going to be starting a crime podcast called The Truth About <laughs> Goodnight's Charlie Bright <laughs> what really happened behind the scenes <laughs> but I think there's been yeah. that's what I'm you think there's been <laughs> we've gone from God, David, why I thought did... we were just doing why a, did it... a film chat podcast I didn't know we were doing investigative journalism yeah why, did, why didn't he get another movie you never guess yeah. what there's, there's a there's, oh there's beef unbelievable beef yeah I will say though like just um, to, well A because I actually do genuinely believe this and also B because I know it's going to make David either laugh or roll his eyes but I, I will defend Danny Dyer in this film a little bit because I think part of the thing that makes Danny Dyer's casting in this one work is that he would have been known more or less only for playing Moff in Human Traffic at this point and you know he is he's not the exact opposite of Moff I think that's why the casting of Danny Dyer in the role of Franny works is because he has like the he very clearly has the what you would think of as the moth aspects to his persona at this point, but he's tamping it down because he really wants to make it work with this woman. So it's very, it's very obviously where all the other characters are faking bravado. Dyer's performance as Franny is like he's he's faking being sensible. Yeah, and see, I think I'd, that's what I agree I with that. I don't, I don't think it's an awful performance. I just think you're asking him to do something that isn't overly natural. So he's having to act, to to act. That's- but I don't think he does a bad job in fact I think out of all the storylines that everyone's got his one's quite difficult yeah I I mean it's a tough one to pull off yeah I I mean he's not great I'm not going to say he's great but I don't think he's that bad I don't think he's that bad I've seen worse performances I've seen worse performances by Danny Dyer so I just think (laughs) I think think you're just hating a little bit (laughs) Ever since he f- you found out he was royalty from when he did Who Do You Think You Are, you've had a thing about him, you have. You've, you've lost all respect for him. I just I just refuse <laughs> to uh, give him... I'll give him credit when he earns it. And as of yet, he hasn't. Considering that the last performance that we ever saw you in was as mankind, I don't think you should be judging. <laughs> Walking around with my tie around your face and a sock on your hand, rocking in the corner. <laughs> um, what's your? What's the funniest part of the? What, what bit made you laugh the most in the film? Oh, well, I, I actually don't think the film makes me laugh. I think what makes me laugh is the fact that it reminds me of something funny, rather than it making me laugh. Does that make sense? 
Like, it, yeah. I'll laugh because it's something that's... Sorry, I'll laugh because it's something that's happened in the film and I'll think... <laughs> and then when I, well, if I analyse it, I'm not actually laughing at the film. I'm probably laughing at something that we did or happened that made me think of it, that, that kind of, that prompted that. But I wouldn't say it's overly, I wouldn't say it's actually funny. I think that, it has its it, moments. Yeah, it's it's little little things, yeah. you know, that, that sort of, you know, that made me chuckle. I like the language, you know, the bollocks. Like it's, it's not something you really hear as much anymore. No. But yeah. it definitely was. But the bit that sort of that made me laugh it was when they um, they nick a, a woman's handbag in the street. He's, oh, that's he's, hilarious! He's about twenty four stone, <laughs> and the, her boyfriend who's with her, and she goes, "Get him, Duke!" It is he ain't gonna catch. <laughs> I can assure you, he ain't even gonna come close. <laughs> <laughs> Get him, dude. It's exactly what it's like. It's like a woman, she's got this massive, big, fat fellow, and she obviously he's her protector, and she just sort of thinks he's unstoppable. But the way she just said it, Get him, Duke, it just really, uh, really made me chuckle. So I actually um, would agree with Mark that this is a film that makes me smile happily more than laugh, even at moments when you know, things within the film are very funny to the characters. And I was going to bring this up earlier as one of my favourite moments that really does make me smile whenever I watch or even think about this movie. It's about 20 minutes in. It's after um, Charlie and Justin have gone to Tony Immaculate and they come away with a Skoda. And there's a shot where, like, it's it's after Charlie has you know, pointed out to Justin that yeah, the Skoda's a pile of shit and all that kind of stuff. And there's a shot where it transitions from Tony Immaculate's scrapyard to the estate and they're dry and charlie and justin are driving onto the estate and it's like sunset it's a summer sunset so you know, roughly well depending on what time of the year it is it's anywhere between eight o'clock and half past nine and there's like you know incongruous country and western kind of track playing over it but that's a moment that always makes me feel happy when i watch the film because like it makes me think of being a kid and being allowed to stay out late because it's so light and it's it's one of those things that just kind of puts me in like just a really kind of relaxed mood. And it's it's why I always think of this film as being joyful, because like that is one of the to me anyway, that's one of the early joyful experiences of life. Like that first time in the summer when you're allowed to stay out past seven o'clock and then it gets to eight o'clock and it's still light and you're not worried about your mum coming to bring you home. And I don't know, there's something about the alchemy of all the elements, the music, the cinematography, the fact that Charlie's dying laughing in the Skoda. Like, it just all just really, really kind of just transports me back to being that age and doing nothing underneath the summer sky. I hate that bit. <laughs> I don't know, I'll tell you why I hate that bit. So everything's good until they get in the car, the dodgy Skoda, because it reminds me of a Sunday afternoon. I was minding my own fucking business in my house and there's a knock on the door. I open the door and David's there. You know what, mate? What are you doing here? I'm panicking. What's wrong? Going for a drive. I said, where are we going to drive? Bindon's nicked his mum's car. <laughs> so we get in the car. Where are we going to go? Let's just go around Catford. So we get to Catford. What happens? Runs out of petrol. Now, David's stance on this was, I told you, you prick Bindon, we were going to run out of petrol. I ain't fucking pushing. It's the exact words that he uses. <laughs> so I had to push the car with with Smithers, believe it or not. I'm going to call him Smithers. 
we went all about 200 yards before I said bollocks to this and I walked to the petrol station bought a uh, a can of petrol walked back put petrol in the car and got them to drop me home so all this basically we were only like a 30 minute walk from my house right? <laughs> it's true it's 100, 100% true story and it gets worse because when they do eventually get back to Peckham someone's parked in Bindon's mum's space so he has to park the car somewhere else. So she kind of works out that he took the car, didn't she? Well, no, no, no you're actually, you're, you're getting half confused. The um, the mum had her own um, bay in the estate. Ah. So, so because the mum had her own bay, the dad would have to park on the street. So that was when it was an issue. Because when we've got back... The, the the area in the road where the dad parked, there was no spaces, so we've had to park like two, three hundred yards away. So we knew full well that you know, like we were going to get, Sussed. you know, or well, he was going to get in trouble. He did ac- have an accident in his mum's in his his mum's car once, and so he reverse parked in instead of parking the way that you know that she would, so she wouldn't notice. But of course she. She did, and she'd come and knock on the door, and my, my nan would stand there, and she'd go, oh, David, what happened yesterday? And I go, I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea. Was you with Andrew yesterday? Yeah, yeah we, we, we was at Mark's house. And she goes, have I got your word on it? 100%. And my nan was just sort of like, look, David would never do nothing, you know? Like, yeah. And then I, I always think to myself, did Tina know I was lying? But yeah. she just didn't have the... The heart, the to balls, sort of, to say anything, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, say it in front of my nan, who she, who she liked to respect. It's but, easy to call you know, your kid a liar. It's very difficult to call someone else's kid a liar, though. It's exactly, it's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing how your stories would always pretty much match, and you didn't even have to really run over them. You know, like it was just sort of like an, an instinct that you would always say the right thing. Well, I would anyway. Maybe not Binden. Uh, but yeah, good. So I think Binden will be mentioned a lot in this podcast as well. For the listener, that that's probably the best Nick Love film to start with. Um, that's a good question. I think it's hard because we're all South London, and I think so. To us, it's sort of like if it, it, it ticks so many boxes straight mm. away, but it's basically film um, based where where we live, give or take a, a mile or two. We were weren't too far off the age when it came out. We'd sort of just lived that what they were just sort of experiencing, you know, going yeah. through. So I, I think it, I think for us it just ticks so many right so many boxes. It'll be interesting to see how a twenty year old now, even in South London, associates Let's with it. it. Um, maybe that's something that we can sort of get some feedback um, from the listeners on as the episodes sort of progress. But um, but yeah, hand down favorite and um. And yeah, I would always recommend it to anyone, um, but I just don't know if they will associate with it as much as I what do. What about you, Jim? It's an interesting, it's an interesting one to sort of think about. Like, yeah, would you recommend it to the listener? I mean, obviously, I would recommend it to the listener, but this film is not is not really representative of like the films that Nick Love would go no, on to no, make. No. I mean, that's the thing that strikes me whenever I rewatch it. Is like this is the only film that Nick. Has, I haven't seen all of them. I haven't seen all of Nick Love's films. I haven't seen the movie he made after the Sweeney and I haven't started bulletproof yet. I, I do want to start bulletproof, but there, there is, there is a heart and a sentimentality to this film that, you know, isn't present in any of the movies he made afterwards. And the interesting thing is that, you know, Nick Love only did the football factory because the original production of the football factory fell apart. 
like it was originally cast with Sean Bean and Dugray Scott and something happened to the funding so it all fell apart and then the producers came to Nick Love and said could you do this can you write it in you know a month or so and could you get going in two months and you know he he did it all come together but that was so successful I think it set the the tone for like the the laddish ultra violent quite cynical movies that he would go on to make Mm. And so, like, you know, if 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 you are someone who was introduced to Nick Love through the Football Factory or the Business or Outlaw, Charlie Bright will be a surprise to you. Mm. And if you're someone who is introduced to Nick Love through Charlie Bright, you might not like the others, yeah, like the ones that come afterwards. So, you know, it, it's a tricky one. But I mean, I, I would always recommend this movie without hesitation, just because, like, this is the kind of movie that I can say to my friends who I meet now who didn't come from South London. It's like, if you ever want to know what my child is like, this. watch this yeah, movie. Yeah, you know, like, you know, rather than me spending two hours telling you, spend 84 minutes let Nick Love tell you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What's definitely not the case now is always, but you you used to know everyone on your estate. You knew you knew who lived there. That's what I'm saying. Even the if community. you didn't know their yeah. name and know them, you knew who they were. Yeah. For every single flat, like in in the whole estate, now I think you must be barely even know the the person who lives two doors. I down. know, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, times are changing. That speaks to what you were saying, you know, like earlier, is that you, you don't see kids hanging out, no. you know, on the estate the way that we did. No, but then what happens the is that your like mum, every, everyone's indoors. Your mum then talks to the other kids' mum, and then they build a relationship as well. And then before you know it, everybody knows everybody. And this existed even before, like your know, lockdown. Like people were spending sort of you know, more and more time indoors, and and sure. you're not going out and socialising in the way that um, in the way that they used yeah. to. And so yeah, it, it that more than the clothes kind of dates it for me. This film, like just like there's there is a there is a lifestyle that I don't think really exists anymore to david's point earlier no that idea of getting a football and going up the pen and just playing all day long is something that we've all done and experienced and i must have been like two or three years ago i took my son to a a park in south london and we just went in the pen i said we'll go and play football in the pen and he said to me what's the pen and i was just like oh my god he doesn't know what a pen is like in in my head it was crazy but um did you leave him i just i locked him in the pen and walked off it (laughs) but but we played we played football for like (laughs) But that reminds me... We played football for like two and a half hours and some kids turned up and said, oh, can we play? And that's just how I remember it. But to him, that's just foreign. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment in the film... um, Yeah, I'm not going to put it into context. It's a little bit of a spoiler, but there's a moment in the film where Charlie comes to find Justin and Justin has taken little kids' balls and he's doing kick-ups. And... I, I can relate to the little kids in that scene. I can relate to Justin, but I can, I can relate to little, the little kids uh, in that scene. I actually remember that bit as well. Yeah, there was always that kid, <laughs> wasn't there? Always that kid. The um, Frank Harper character made me uh, made me chuckle a couple of times as well. Do you remember his role? Oh, he's, he's uh, Tommy's dad, isn't he? Um, yeah. It just You know, like the, the typical drunken staff London dad... You know, like you, you, you need to spend two weeks in order shot. Do you know? You know, you just <laughs> yeah, you know, like, there was always that dad who would talk a load of shit, and like think he had it so much tougher. And just you know, like just but it just little things like that just sort of make uh, make me chuckle. And any, anything else you want to mention from the film? I've got a few things on my notes. Nothing major, just but just uh, a line that makes me think that maybe uh, Nick Love wasn't. Uh, successful with the ladies what um, that? I just 
can't imagine ever asking a woman if she wants to go out on a date and her answer being no, but feel free to come round. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the most ideal line you'd want to hear. Wouldn't it? Do you want to go out for a date? Do I have to whine and dine you before I get some? No, just come round for a cup. I don't want none of that. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put it out there. That's also now known these days as a dating app. Yeah. You don't actually ever go out for a date. Nick Love was ahead of his there. time. He was ahead of his time. I reckon he's got shares in Bumble. <laughs> but did you notice that, Jim? That just, that just, that segment just it's not realistic, it is it? Happened. Yeah, it's not realistic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, we we got to be... I suppose we got to be, you know, completely candid and say, like, you know, at, at 2000, this is 2001, so, like, I wouldn't have been taking any of these approaches um, <laughs> at, at that stage, so... I'm going to be in 2001 my phone got used more for snake than it did calling birds <laughs> oh dear it was brilliant but Danny Burr's character was actually um... it, do you know what that character could have been anyone like they didn't have to get Danny Bear to play that role it could have been anyone yeah she was it's, um... it's, it's a decent character but she doesn't do anything yeah but the thing is though is because anyway, it was his first film. There was a lot of recognisable faces. I mean, just random. Is that, I think is Danny Bear even an actress? I just associate as sort of being the original wag. Uh, no, she was. No, she was on the word at the yeah. time. Like, yeah. And actually, like, because we were looking at um, Charlie Bright, like, I actually looked up to what's, what's Danny Bear doing now because I haven't actually heard about her for ages. And I actually found out she's actually like um, a real estate developer in California. Like, and oh, she's really? been a real estate developer in California for about 15 years. So, um, yeah, she, she gave, gave up. But, yeah, to David's point, I mean, there's David Fulis, who you know, yep. would go on to be even more famous than he was at the time. But he was still you know, recognizable because he was in you know, the Mike Lee movie Naked and he'd done a few other things. You know, Jamie Foreman you know, would go on to be in EastEnders. There's quite a high number of actors who either were or would be on East, uh, EastEnders in, in this movie. But what you're saying is right. It must for his first movie. He must have had quite a decent production budget to get those people in the first place. Yeah, I mean the money is definitely up there on the screen in terms of just like the the look of the movie. It's, yeah. You know, it, like you know, not to keep banging on about the aspect ratio and stuff like that. But I mean, yeah, you know, it's very clearly like a a proper film in a way that you know British films sometimes look sure. like they could be on TV at the, yeah, at the same time. Yeah. But so Paul Nichols and Jamie Foreman and I think David Fulis as well were in Nick Love's short film, which I believe was a special feature on either the Football Factory or the Business DVD. And I think one of the ways that Nick Love might have been able to get particularly the cast that were associated with EastEnders at the time is that for about four years, between 98 and 2002, I think it was, he was actually married to Patsy Palmer. So oh, yeah, I he was, you're right, yeah. She, she right. might have been like his connection. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I forgot about Putting put a word in with... Uh, yeah, yeah. Cause I, I actually because the, the, the Reverend from old East End the, from East Enders was um, cousin Hector, wasn't he? Was he a yeah. priest? Uh, yeah, yeah, Menley's brother. The priest, wasn't he? The priest. Yeah, yeah, it was Menley's brother. That's it. Oh, yeah, that's what. Yeah, good old Menley. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 good film. I've actually enjoyed this as well. Yeah, it's been good. But I think what we're going to do is carry on with the nostalgia for the next few shows, right? Yeah, I think so. Thoroughly enjoyed that, lads. A fantastic episode. Moving on to the next one. So, 
just to confirm to the listener, we have now released six episodes. So the next episode is just a click away. Our first six episodes have all been released. So you can follow through straight after this one. And we will be going bi-weekly. The show will be bi-weekly as of the 14th of May. Now, if you want to interact with us between now and the 14th of May or on all any of the shows that you've listened to so far, best way to do that is via social media. Uh, let us give you those social media handles. Uh, David, what's the Twitter? Yep, the Twitter handle is at blokeswatchmov1. I invite all feedback, banter, criticism of Danny Dyer, any, any, anything movie-related, anything humorous-related to movies, get in touch with us. I look forward to it. And if you want to have longer-form arguments on Facebook, you'll be able to find us at Blokes Watch Movies. And our Instagram handle is Blokes Watch Movies. That will be all images of ourselves, anything that we're going to be discussing, and David's constantly evolving top 10 movies. So thank you for taking the time for listening. We really appreciate it. Please do get in touch with any positive or negative feedback because we want to make your listening experience as pleasurable as possible. And if we don't like what we're saying, at least we can have a go back at you. Lads, it's been a pleasure as always. Love you guys to bits. Blokes Watch Movies out. Love you too, man. Best of luck, gentlemen. Blokes Watch Movies out. Take care.